Tim Crane suggested that it may not be necessary for an advocate of the computational theory of mind to give a scientific or naturalistic account of representation. They could instead take it as a primitive notion, just as biologists take the notion of fitness to be primitive. David Papineau, Professor of Philosophy at King's College London, does not take this easy route. In my interview with him, we talked about his preferred naturalistic theory of mental content, what he calls success semantics, which is a version of teleosemantics. I began, though, by asking him why he's attracted to naturalism about the mind and to say what this involves. I find it rather difficult to define the notion of naturalism. So it's a term that's used a lot by philosophers nowadays, but I don't think it's got any very precise meaning. It refers to a kind of family of positions rather than anything very definite. I mean, one idea is that we want philosophy to be continuous with or perhaps even part of science. I'm not sure that's a very good understanding of naturalism, or if you do understand naturalism in that way, I'm not sure it's a very good idea to be a naturalist because there's plenty of things that are worth thinking that are not scientific things, and perhaps so even within philosophy. Another idea is much more specific, that you're a naturalist if you're not a dualist, if you think the mind is just the brain, you don't believe in any extra mind stuff, but I'm not sure that's very good notion of naturalism either. I mean, there's some dualists, David Chalmers perhaps, who seem to me very much naturalists, and perhaps one might not be a dualist and yet fail to be a naturalist because of one's views in other areas about morality or mathematics, say. Uh, I think the simplest way of understanding what naturalism is, is it's how philosophy goes if you try and do it without God. I think a lot of things in our philosophical tradition seemed for a long time unproblematic. I think that when you take away God, as has effectively happened within Western philosophy in the last couple of hundred years, then certain things start to be problematic. And what's distinctive about naturalistic philosophy is it worries about these things. For instance, the existence of self-standing, fundamental, unexplained norms is something which, well, this isn't straightforward, but arguably is not problematic if you have fundamental deity, but is problematic without. And similarly, it seems to me, uh, notions of representation would have seemed unproblematic if you thought of our minds as fragments of the divine mind. But once you take away the divine mind and its power to imbue physical bodies with intentionality, then intentionality representation becomes very problematic indeed. What I'm not quite seeing is why taking away God makes the thought that physical organisms like us have representational capacities problematic. Well, if you believe in a traditional God, then surely one of the basic facts about the universe will be that God can represent things. God is intelligent, God thinks, God has thoughts about you and me and the rest of the world. And if one believes in the basic fundamental God, one's not going to be explaining that power in terms of something else. That's just basic to the nature of God, that he's capable of intelligent thought. And 
Maybe when you have God, his powers of intelligent thought could somehow distill down into our minds. Our minds are fragments of the minds of God and thereby get the power of representation from God's power. But if you take away God and then you have left at first pass the world as described by modern science, it's not clear that there's any representation in there. It just doesn't look like that's one of the basic properties of the natural world. I mean, to see the problem, just think about words on paper. I mean, every philosophically inclined child might well think, how come that word, I don't know, lemur, stands for a city on the other side of the earth? I mean, that's just marks on paper, or if you're saying it, it's just sounds in the air. How can sounds in the air have the power to represent something else? And, well, I mean, words stand for what they do because of the way we understand the words. But now we come down to what makes our understandings, our mental states, stand for anything else. You think of our mental states as brain states, you have just the same problem. How can a brain state stand for something else? And it looks like something that just cries out for explanation. So you're sympathetic to the computational theory of mind, and that uses the notion of representation. And you're keen on giving a naturalistic account of that notion. Can I ask you then for your views on some of the more popular attempts to give a naturalistic theory of the notion of representation? How sympathetic are you, for example, to functional role, or is it sometimes called conceptual role theories of representation? Not very sympathetic at all. And it's something of a change of mind for me, because if you were so inclined to go back to my first book, which was written now, some years ago, you'll see that I was a mad conceptual role semanticist then, to the extent that I thought that no two people could possibly share a concept because the roles in their heads would always be different. But I've now given up on this approach almost entirely. One obvious difficulty is that if we're trying to figure out the content of a belief or concept just by seeing how it relates to other beliefs or concepts inside the individual's cognitive economy, cognitive structure, in terms of what inferences they're inclined to make, what they'll infer from what else, and so on. There's an obvious difficulty, which is that how does one belief or concept get a content by being related to other beliefs or concepts if they don't already have some content and if their content is going to be given in the same way it's rather like everything is unsupported each belief or concept is supposed to get its content from its relation to other beliefs or concepts and all you end up with is a kind of here's the standard picture a net in which the nodes are concepts and the strings are dispositions to make inferences and this net is not tied up to the world at all so you'd just be looking at it as a, a structure of interrelated concepts with no relation to the outside world and from that point of view it could represent anything or nothing. Could a conceptual role semanticist perhaps reply to that by saying that the whole net if you like to use that metaphor is tied down at the periphery mm -hmm. and that Concepts like red, for example, are very closely related to the external world, whereas concepts like light bulb, for example, mm -hmm. or letterbox, are very distantly related. So conceptual role semantics might work by 
treating the meaning of these higher-order concepts as holistically given. But the whole is tied down by the relation to perception and action. Once you see the need to tie the network of beliefs down to the external world, then I think the motivation for bringing the network in the first place falls away. I mean, why stop with perception? Why not think of my concept of cat, say, my beliefs involving that concept, as being related to cats rather than my perception of a cat? And indeed, why not just think of our various concepts as having their content because they bear a certain relation to things in the external world? What I'm suggesting here is pretty close to a notion of meaning, which is just meaning as reference. Now, you might say, but don't you want some other notion of meaning? My concept of cat isn't just something that represents the things in the external world, but something that I reason with in a certain way. It works a certain way in my thinking, and doesn't its conceptual role capture that? And I think a very good answer to that challenge is to say, well... It does work a certain way in my thinking, we do want to capture that. But you don't have to build the way it so works into its meaning to capture that, because after all, you've got all my beliefs about cats already in the network, just considered as beliefs. So if you think of my term cat as having its meaning, its content, just as its reference, you can still explain all the reasoning I do as a result of my cat beliefs in terms of which beliefs I have. You don't need to build my structure of beliefs into the content of my concepts because the structure of beliefs will be there even if you don't. So I see no virtue in conceptual role semantics at all. Just think of semantics in terms of reference. A lot of people who would agree with that response to conceptual role theories would try to spell out what the reference relation is in terms of some kind of indication relation. Do you think that that's a good way to begin? To start with a simple notion of indication or causal covariance, as Fodor, for example, has called it, and try and deal with the problems that emerge, such as the problem of misrepresentation? Or do you think there's some completely other way of doing it? Well, I do think that the indicator approach is an improvement on the conceptual role approach in that it puts the relation of our concepts to their reference kind of at the centre of the analysis of meaning. But even so, it seems to me there's something very unhappy about trying to analyse that notion of reference by starting with indication. The basic idea there is that a term stands for the circumstances that lead you to apply the term. And it's a natural way of thinking, given our philosophical tradition, but I don't think, from another perspective, it's particularly natural at all. What I have in mind here is that if you think in that way, it becomes difficult to see how anybody can have false beliefs. If the content of a belief is the circumstance that leads you to form it, well, then you'll form it when its content is there and it will be true. But surely it's all too easy for humans and any other thinkers they may be to have false beliefs. And so you may well think that a theory that makes false beliefs problematic is starting in the wrong place. Let me try and make this more graphic by giving you a simple example. Suppose, I mean, this is in fact reasonably ethologically accurate, there are monkeys, vervet monkeys, that will go and hide under bushes whenever they get into a certain brain state. Hiding under bushes is a good way to avoid being eaten by eagles. 
I say that those facts alone are enough to tell us that that brain state represents an eagle nearby. But note that the story I've just told is consistent with the monkeys being terrible at telling whether eagles are nearby. Maybe only one in a hundred times when they get into this brain state is there actually an eagle nearby. So the brain state's a lousy indicator of an eagle, but nevertheless I want to say it represents an eagle, and that's shown by the fact that when the monkeys are in this brain state, they will act in a way that's advantageous, that's appropriate, to the presence of an eagle. And that's what shows their brain state represents the presence of an eagle. Now, I haven't spelt out explicitly what kind of theory of representation I'm assuming here, but I hope this example makes it clear that indicator semantics is a misguided place to start. Perhaps I could follow on by just asking you to spell out an alternative account of the reference or representation relation that copes with misrepresentation, at least in this case. What I had in mind there when I was talking about the monkey example was what's often called success semantics. If you have a belief like representation, according to success semantics, the way to figure out its content is to look at what actions it causes, look at what actions that representation prompts, and then ask, in what circumstances would those actions be a sensible thing to do? What circumstances would, if they obtained, lead that action to succeed? And you can think of the content of the belief then as the success conditions, the conditions under which the actions of belief prompts will succeed. I mean, it's a terribly intuitive idea. I want a beer, I have some brain state that makes me go to the fridge, you can infer from that 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 brain state must represent to me that there's beer in the fridge. Because it's in those circumstances that my action, given my desires, is a sensible thing to do. Okay, that sounds very intuitive, but I'm not sure whether it's intuitive because it's vacuous or empty or uninformative. I mean, your theory, in effect, is this, that a state, or a brain state, represents those circumstances in which the actions that it causes would be sensible. Mm. So you're relying on the notion of an action being sensible, and that sounds at least as in need of reduction or explanation as the notion of representation that we're trying to explicate or explain. So can you say something about why it's okay to appeal to the notion of an action being sensible? Good. When it comes to sophisticated thinkers like human beings, I think the appropriate notion of an action being sensible, an action given the circumstances being apt to succeed, is a notion of an action which will lead to the satisfaction of the agent's desires. So in that kind of context where you've got a structure of beliefs and desires, the thing to say about beliefs is that content for any belief is that circumstance that will guarantee that the actions it prompts will lead to the satisfaction of the desires it's operating in concert with. And that's a bit of a mouthful, but if you think of the fridge example, I hope it will become clear. But you're right, I'm assuming here, crucially, the notion of a desire being satisfied. And that's itself a representational notion. I mean, desires are for certain states of the world. I desire that I have a beer in my hand. I desire that there be peace on earth. I mean, a desire represents, in a different way from beliefs, but still represents that the world should be a certain way. And if one finds representation puzzling, then one ought to find the notion of desire and desire satisfaction puzzling. 
Now, this is the place where I and others, most prominently Ruth Millikan, appeal to biological considerations. We say that to understand the satisfaction conditions of a desire, to understand what a desire is aimed at, its target, you need to think in biological evolutionary terms. You need to think what effect was that desire selected to produce. This is to apply the notion of biological function to desires. In general, in biology, we talk about items having a function when they produce some effect, and what's more, the fact they produce that effect is the reason they're here now. The polar bear's white fur has the function of camouflaging it, and the standard way of understanding that in biology circles is to say that means the polar bear's white fur does camouflage it. And what's more, that explains, via a story of natural selection, why the polar bears have white fur. Now, in the past, ancestors of polar bears with white fur were camouflaged, and as a result, they had more offspring, and that's why all polar bears have white fur. Now, similarly, one wants to say here, my desire for water when I'm thirsty is a state which has the function of getting me water. And that's a matter of its being here now in me, because ancestors who had the state and were thereby led to water survived and reproduced better. So what I and others want to do is to take the basic idea of success semantics of beliefs and desires having coordinated contents in the way the fridge example showed and then place all that in a biological functional context to think of the mind or the belief-desire part of the mind as a system which has been designed by natural selection to allow agents to produce certain results as guided by their beliefs. And so I think that you're right, just appealing to an action being sensible or appropriate or satisfying desires without saying anything more would be no good. But once we think of desire satisfaction as a biological matter, as a special case of biological function, then I think the appropriate explanation has been given. You've been suggesting that a theory of mental content might draw on a notion of function that's grounded in human evolutionary history. This may work for some mental states, but I'm worried about mental states like hoping that your computer doesn't crash, for example. Our evolutionary ancestors didn't have computers, so that particular hope, that particular desire, can't be accounted for in the terms you suggest, can it? Okay, that's a a good question, and uh, I obviously need to have some answer to that. I started with the example of the desire for water, because that's a kind of desire one might plausibly think is the result of biological evolution, that you desire water when you become dehydrated. But obviously, as you just pointed out, we have many desires for things that weren't around in the period when our ancestors were evolving, and the content of those desires obviously can't be explained in terms of the selection of genes over generations. It doesn't follow from that that we shouldn't think of even desires like that as having functions indeed biological functions. And there's a couple of options here. One line of thought is to say that, well, those concepts are learned, but learning is a selectional process, just like the intergenerational selection of genes. I mean, just to take an example, take standard instrumental conditioning, pigeons being taught to peck a bar in order to get food. 
you can think of their learning this as a matter of selection. At first they make random movements. Some movements are followed by food and other ones not. They embody some mechanism that encourages the neural pathways that give rise to food and discourages other ones, and as a result they end up being programmed to peck the bar in the circumstances. And in line with that, it's perfectly natural to say the pigeons are pecking the bar in order to get the food. The function of their pecking the bar is to get them food. And there's a case where you get just the same talk of function as a result of seeing the thing as an item that's been selected. But the selection here isn't intergenerational selection of genes. It's selection in learning. But there is a different option, which is the one that's embraced by Ruth Millikan, she says, no, the, the processes that give rise to beliefs and desires in learning do instill functions in those beliefs and desires, not because learning is a selectional process, but because the mechanisms that give rise to beliefs and desires themselves have the function of producing certain items that will serve certain purposes. She uses an analogy. Take the chameleon's mechanism that turns it the colour of whatever background it is. Okay, Once it's turned that colour, that colour in its skin has the function of disguising it against that background. You could say the redness of its skin, if it's on a red sofa as you are now, is designed to camouflage it against the sofa. But it's never been on that sofa before. Its ancestors may never have been on an item of that colour. So the function of the red skin, Millikan says, is a derived function and it derives from the prior mechanism, the colour producing mechanism, whose purpose is to give the chameleon skin a colour that will disguise against whatever background it's. So Millikan similarly thinks that we have in us mechanisms that are designed to give us concepts that will relate us to items in our environment, whatever they might be even if they're items that weren't around in evolution. And so she thinks that there are specific and non-selectional mechanisms that give us concepts and thereby beliefs and desires for items in our environment, even though those items weren't themselves present in our evolutionary history. Rather, the mechanisms are kind of general mechanism, like the chameleon's mechanism is a general mechanism for making it the same colour as the background, whatever that might be. We have in us concept-producing mechanisms to general mechanisms for relating us to features of our environment, whatever they might be. Let me ask a different question about the appeal you make to evolution, and it's one you'll be familiar with. Suppose that I'm standing next to a tree in a swamp, and the tree and me are both struck by lightning, and I dissolve into nothing. At the same time, by astonishing coincidence, the tree is converted into a physical replica of me out of different molecules, this replica, let's call it Swamp Alex, moves exactly as I did. It leaves the swamp. It encounters and then seems to recognise and to speak with my friends in English. It moves into my house and starts writing open university course materials. And no one can tell the difference. Perhaps I am this Swamp Alex now. If I were, would I have beliefs and desires? Now, it seems to me that you are committed to saying that I don't, that I wouldn't. And that seems very counterintuitive. Well, I used just to say, you don't. I don't care if you look like Alex Barber and so on. I mean, you don't have any beliefs and desires if you're a swamp man. 
but I've rather changed my mind and I'm inclined to tell a more complicated story now and perhaps I can tell you why. My, my original line was, well, uh, it might be counterintuitive to say that a swamp man has no beliefs and desires, but we've got a good theory here, the Tito-Semantic theory, and good theories often make us revise our intuitions a little bit. Once people got a good theory of what gold was, they realised that certain substances that looked like gold weren't really gold. And now we've got a good theory of what representation is. We realise that certain people, beings who look like they're representing, aren't really representing. And I just used to say, well, let's bite the bullet and override any intuitions we have about Swamp Man being a believer and desirer. That was my old view. But I've now been persuaded out of it. And I can remember a student of mine pressing me and saying, look, your view's horrible. It's inhuman. Suppose you came across a, a swamp person. Suppose you came across a, a swamp child. On your view, as far as I can see, it would be all right to kill the swamp child and eat it as meat. And I said, it would be wrong to harm the swamp child or the swamp person because I never denied they had feelings. I never denied that they would be conscious. It seems to me that they would be conscious and have feelings. It would be something that it was like for them. I'm just saying they don't have any representational states. So I thought I'd get out of this argument by saying, well, since they would have feelings, it would be wrong to kill them and eat them. But my student didn't let me off. He said, no, no, after all, you kill cows, don't you? And I said, well, I guess so. And he said, well, look, they have feelings, but, but you think it's all right to kill them, provided you kill them quickly and painlessly. And no doubt you think that's okay where it's not okay with higher animals, humans, perhaps chimpanzees, because these higher animals have hopes and fears and desires for their children and so on. And I agreed with the student. I agreed that it was precisely the ability to form plans, have hopes and projects that made it wrong to kill beings with higher cognitive powers. And my student pointed out, that's just what I said swamp people didn't have. They didn't have any representational states, so they didn't have any power to form plans or anything like that. And so I should happily kill them. And it seemed clear to me that that was wrong, that it would be wrong to kill a swamp man, even more so to kill a swamp child. So now I thought about this quite long and hard, and I think the right answer is now rather different. And it's to do with the fact that swamp people are made up. There aren't actually any swamp people. I think that if there were lots of swamp people, well, then that would just show the Tito-Semantic theory was wrong. But since there aren't, the Tito-Semantic theory could be right. I mean, if there were lots of swamp people, not only would the Tito-Semantic theory be wrong, but it would be wrong to kill them as well for that reason. Perhaps I can make the point clearer like this. Think of it rather like gold or some other scientific concept. Water might be a better one. We start off with an everyday notion of water, this odorless, colourless liquid, and then we get a scientific theory of its underlying essence. It's made of H2O, and that's illuminating and helpful thing to know. I want to think of teleosemantics in the same way. We start off, and this is what we talked about at the beginning, we start off with a everyday notion, a common sense notion of beliefs, desires, and they're representing certain things. And then I think we should regard teleosemantics as telling us what in the actual world is the scientific essence of those states. It's that they have a biological selectional history. 
And that's a useful and illuminating thing to know, to think of these states as having a biological and selectional history. Gets us to some deeper and more important feature of their nature. So I regard the Swamp Man argument as no more effective than this. Somebody comes along and says, look, water can't be H2O because imagine that all our rivers are full of XYZ. That's not a good argument against the claim that in the actual world water is H2O. No more do I think it's a good argument against the claim that representation involves selectional history to say, imagine that lots of the people walking around with beliefs and desires don't have any selectional history. The fact that there's possible worlds with swamp men in doesn't cut any ice against the theory at all. David Papineau, thank you very much indeed. From the Open University. For more information, go to www.open.ac.uk forward slash use.